Welcome to The Jolt. It's Friday the 20th of October and I'm Sam Morgan, your host. You'll have just heard New Zealand's rugby players performing the Haka, a ceremonial Maori dance which the team uses to psych themselves up for battle and challenge their opponents. New Zealand and the impact of its new government on energy policies is the theme of our deep dive later in the show, so stay tuned to hear about what is happening down in the land of the long white cloud. First up, let's take a look at some of the major climate and energy stories making headlines around the world. The US government has announced a record investment of $3.5 billion into electricity grids as part of Joe Biden's plan to fully decarbonize the power sector by 2035. According to the Department of Energy, the funding will help get more than 35 gigawatts of renewable power into the US system. The investment will also support 400 microgrids, which can withstand wider power outages. 58 projects across 44 of the US's 50 states will benefit from the injection of cash. Jolt listeners will remember that Monday's episode was dedicated to why grids are so hot right now, so I can only assume that the United States Commander-in-Chief is already an avid listener of the show, so thanks for listening, Mr. President. Joe Biden will welcome EU leaders in Washington today for a summit, first of its kind since 2021. Two major issues, steel and aluminium tariffs, which the US has suspended but not permanently removed, and carmaker access to the Inflation Reduction Act's billions of dollars of subsidies, were meant to feature heavily on the agenda. However, due to lack of progress behind the scenes, no deal on either issue is expected. Brussels is considering launching a probe into Chinese steel subsidies to help convince the US to scrap its tariffs altogether, so a formal announcement on that may yet materialise. In Japan, an international atomic energy agency team has begun testing fish taken from the waters near the Fukushima nuclear plant, the site of the infamous nuclear disaster in 2011. The purpose of the tests is to check whether fish species are showing any adverse effects since the Japanese authorities began releasing contaminated wastewater into the ocean. The water has been used to cool reactor fuel rods and has been diluted in order to, hopefully, make it safe. The entire process of dumping the vast quantity of water is expected to last 30 years. Results of the IAEA tests are expected in the coming weeks. French company Technip Energies failed to comply with EU sanctions against Russia by continuing to supply engineering equipment to an LNG project in the Arctic, according to an investigation led by Le Monde newspaper. Technip reportedly supplied vital equipment between August and October 2022, despite sanctions prohibiting trade in April 2022. The oil and gas firm denies the claims and points to the fact that it exited the project earlier this year as per its contract. A gas turbine has been driven by 100% renewable hydrogen for the very first time. The international project, which involves Germany's Siemens Energy, France's Angers and the UK's Centrax, a turbine manufacturer, successfully fueled a turbine owned by a French paper packaging company. Previous efforts had used a blend of 30% hydrogen and 70% fossil gas. This time, hydrogen was produced on site using an electrolyzer provided by Siemens 
and solar and wind power sourced nearby. Siemens hopes the project findings will help it prepare all of its turbines so that they can be run on hydrogen. Lithuania started officially operating what it calls the most powerful battery in Europe this week. The 200 megawatt battery system can provide continuous power for an hour to the four urban areas that are connected to it, satisfying the Baltic country's energy security objectives quite nicely, given its shared border with Russia. The project took just 34 months to complete from initial idea to operation, which the Lithuanian Energy Ministry says is a record for a project of this type. Storage fits in nicely to the country's clean energy ambitions. A second offshore wind power auction is now scheduled for the 15th of January, after the European Commission signed off on a 193 million euro state aid scheme aimed at supporting the renewables sector. Poland has begun retraining coal miners as wind farm operators as part of a new programme meant to help workers move from a dying sector to a thriving one. The Polish branch of energy firm EDF has organised the two-week-long course, which is free for miners and which will offer trainings on maintenance, operation, safety and many other valuable skills needed to work in the current generation of wind farms. The course is accredited by the Global Wind Organisation, so successful graduates will not only be able to work in Polish wind farms, but abroad as well. A second training is already accepting applicants for the first quarter of 2024. That's it for the news. Now, let's get into the story of the moment. New Zealand, or Aotearoa, to give its proper Maori name, is a relatively small player when it comes to the global energy transition. With a population of just about 5 million people, an emissions footprint that contributes about 0.1% to the global total, it is by no means a power generation or emitting superpower. The country is, however, implementing a bunch of energy and climate measures that the rest of the world may take note of. Last weekend, voters elected to install a new government. A new government that has some big plans for the green transition, most of which might be bad news for clean energy advocates. New Zealanders decided that a change of government was in order when they went to polls at the weekend, ousting the ruling Labour Party after a campaign that was largely dominated by cost-of-living issues. That brought an end to six years of Labour government, and it now appears likely that the centre-right nationals will govern with the nationalist New Zealand First Party and right-wing ACT Party. Coalition talks still need to be held, but there is a strong possibility that those three parties will form the next government. Labour's climate and energy policies were rather progressive when all is taken into account. Former Prime Minister Jacinda Ardern, who resigned at the beginning of the year citing family and personal reasons, had overseen a programme that reformed the country's emissions trading scheme and declared a climate emergency. This is how Ardern announced that latter point. Mr Speaker, I think the first and most important point to make is that this is a declaration based on science. The United Nations Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change, the preeminent scientific body in the world on this matter, has determined that in order to avoid 
A situation, a disastrous 1.5 degree Celsius rise in global temperatures and beyond, then we must act with urgency, Mr Speaker, to ensure global emissions fall to net zero by 2050. Yeah. This declaration is an acknowledgement of the next generation, yeah, yeah. an acknowledgement right. of the burden that they will carry if we do not get this right and if we do not take action now. Perhaps most notably, though, Ardennes' fledgling government instigated a ban on all new oil and gas exploration in 2018. The policy protected existing permits, but imposed a moratorium on new searches for fossil fuels. Transitions have to start somewhere. And unless we make decisions today that will essentially take effect in 30 or more years' time, we run the risk of acting too late and causing abrupt shocks to communities and our country. That is why the decision that we have announced today is not one that will change the landscape immediately, but it will down the track and we are ready for it. Today we are announcing that the government will end new offshore oil exploration permits in New Zealand. At the time the announcement was either applauded as a step in the right direction, or decried for one of two reasons, either by those that saw it as lost revenues and economic growth, or by those that thought it did not go far enough by allowing continued production by existing permit holders. New Zealand's oil and gas industry is by no means a global player, ranking just 66th in the world in terms of oil production. Domestic output meets barely a fifth of demand. But under the likely new government, the ban is set to be repealed. All three probable coalition members oppose it, and there are even plans to set up a state-owned company to lead new exploration efforts. Most oil produced is exported, as New Zealand refineries lack the right infrastructure to make it ready for market, while any gas that is discovered is generally sold domestically. The three parties in the government mix see gas as a big part of hitting net zero by 2050, New Zealand's main legally binding climate goal, and they've touted carbon capture as an economical way of getting there. There's a bit of a parallel here with what has recently happened in the United Kingdom. Prime Minister Rishi Sunak announced a string of new oil and gas permits for the North Sea back in July, insisting that it would not be incompatible with the country's net zero strategy. Well, it's great to be in Scotland to strengthen our energy security with more licenses for the North Sea. Now, when it comes to our energy security, we are still going to need oil and gas. 25% of our energy will come from oil and gas, even in 2050. Far better that we get that from here at home. Better for the economy, better for our energy security, better for jobs. Experts quickly pointed out that, firstly, permits issued now might not lead to any oil and gas for one or even two decades, if at all, making it a useless policy to address current energy security concerns. Secondly, North Sea oil and gas is for the large part exported and sold on the global market, so the idea that it would help the UK economy and cost of living crisis is a complete falsity. The UK Labour Party has said that it would ban new permits if elected, which is looking all the more likely according to current polls. An election is due next year. Essentially, new oil and gas is not compatible with global climate goals. That's a well-established fact at this point, so New Zealand and the UK are flouting a lot of scientific consensus with these policies. I spoke with Maeve O'Connor, an oil and gas analyst with Carbon Tracker, about what this all means. So how worrying is it, Maeve, that governments are flirting with the idea of reversing bans on oil and gas exploration, new oil and gas exploration, uh, rather than you know, banning it. Yeah, so I think it's concerning um, and it's concerning from a couple of different points of view. Um, of course, off the bat, the climate implications are severe in that 
the International Energy Agency, which is kind of an intergovernmental organization, they model scenarios under which we can hope to achieve kind of different temperature warming outcomes. And they've been quite clear that if we want to achieve a 1.5 degree warming outcome, that no new conventional oil and gas projects um, can go ahead. So the implication for that is that, you know, conventional oil and gas projects include offshore, um, they include kind of most oil and gas projects, I'd say. So if they're to go ahead, um, then it's very likely that we will breach um, a 1.5 outcome. I mean, in terms of the overall picture of which countries are actually banning new oil and gas and which aren't, um, I assume it's very much a minority of countries. Do you, do you think that it needs to get to a tipping point of real substantial players saying they're going to ban it in order for it to be, you know, like a, a ripple effect or what actually needs to happen to um, make progress here? Because I guess, you know, you have the UN Secretary General saying that this is really bad and nobody taking notice of him. So what actually needs to change in that regard? Yeah, absolutely. Um, I, I think that's a, that's a very fair assessment that we we need kind of buy-in from from large producers. What I would say is that this kind of drive to ban new oil and gas has gathered quite a lot of traction quite quickly in the international community. And um, so several countries, including kind of Denmark, um, France, Ireland, um, Costa Rica and Portugal have all announced bans on new exploration. And all of those countries are part of an alliance called the Beyond Oil and Gas Alliance, um, which advocates setting bans and kind of setting exit dates for fossil fuels. Um, and that alliance was formed at the COP in Glasgow in 2026. Um, so that's kind of only two years and yet it's been able to gain and kind of push for or or it's been evidence of kind of the political will that is out there. Back to New Zealand though, where the incoming government is not going to stop at unbanning new oil and gas, a target to make the New Zealand grid completely clean by 2030, which would make New Zealand one of the first major countries in the world to achieve that feat, is also going on the scrap heap. There's still interest in renewables though, as the parties are probably going to hash out a deal to streamline permitting procedures and cut bureaucratic burdens on, for example, the offshore wind sector, but any financial or regulatory support will be minimal. A couple of weeks ago, I spoke with Dr. Christina Hood for one of Foresight's other podcasts, The Policy Dispatch. Christina is a renowned climate expert and New Zealander who used to work for the International Energy Agency. Before the election, she explained why renewables are New Zealand's future. We have absolutely abundant wind resources. We've barely started to get into the solar game, um, mm. although there's you know great resource. Uh, there's potential for offshore wind. We have geothermal. We have all this hydro. You know there is absolutely no shortage of potential for renewables. The block is, as I said, it's just that last little managing supply security in the dry winters that's that's mm -hmm. the big challenge. I really do thoroughly recommend you give that entire discussion a listen if you can, as it really dives into the intricacies of New Zealand's energy and climate landscape. Uh, you can find it online on our website or in-app. Nothing has been formally announced yet, of course. The political parties need to agree on their coalition and go from there. But given the likelihood of these policy reversals seeing the light of day, it's important to consider how decisions like this affect the rest of the world. Countries like New Zealand wield a lot of soft power. Consider the impact that its assault rifles ban had following a mass shooting in 2019, for example. Small countries can make a lot of noise and influence others, for good or bad. 
This is a story worth following, especially as we're about a month away from COP28. Uh, Firstly, to see whether the new government makes good on its pledges, and secondly, to see what wider impact it has. On a lighter note, the New Zealand All Blacks play a Rugby World Cup semi-final against Argentina this evening. I'm very conflicted about this match. On the one hand, they're playing Argentina, who knocked my beloved Wales out in the last round. But on the other, New Zealand has already won it three times, so maybe it's time someone else won it? So long as England don't win, that's all that matters. Many thanks for joining me for today's Jolt. I'll be back next week on Monday for much more of the same, bite-sized updates and a look at the story of the moment. I hope you can join me. Thanks once again to everyone at Foresight for helping to make the Jolt possible and shout out to Mute Island for providing the theme music. Until next time, thanks for being a part of the Jolt. Thank you.